Welcome back to The Hard Question. Uh, we're resuming our wonderful podcasts, and I'm delighted to welcome on board a guy who was on my program a while back. I don't even know that if he remembers. It's been so many years ago that he was on the show. And I'm delighted to get him on because he's a former member of Congress. Not only that, he was the, I guess he was the minority uh, chair or sat on the on the Judiciary Committee, which is so significant for a number of years. And I'm talking about the former congressman from Georgia, Doug Collins. Doug, it's been such a long time since we've been together on air together. And uh I have to unpack a number of items with you. First and foremost, we've been talking about the past podcast about the effective political strategy, the manipulation of chaos to rise fear, uh, to make people feel intimidated, to make them hold back and to weigh and balance whether it's going to get them elected or not elected. And now the, the thing of this is, is, you know, we've seen it uh, with people's reputations being canceled. This, the leak at the Supreme Court where you've got protesters trying to alter the direction of an outcome from our most prestigious, you know, uh, a committee that deals with law. Uh, I want your thoughts on this. You, you were there. You were the ranking member there for a long time on that House Judiciary Committee. Oh yeah, it's great. Well, it's good to be back with you. It's been it's been way too long, and it's it's good to be here. But you just hit, I think, really on the, the one of the crux issues that we're going to have to deal with. And Democrats, I want to be honest here. Both sides do it to an extent. Democrats do it in an excellent uh, fashion to, to to manipulate information in a crisis mode. Remember, it was Rahm Emanuel who said, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." It was it was their mantra to say, "Look, we got a problem here. This is our time to go in and fix it. Let's use the, the chaos, if you would, to do what we need to do." Chaos theory in and of itself says that a pattern develops out of randomness. And what they're depending on is the randomness of everything going on in the world to say, okay, while you're focused on three or four things, we're going to get these things accomplished uh, as we go on. Um, something was just said just the other day, and I think you might be interested in this. It was a headline that I saw on one of those aggregates, you know, that come out of DC of news aggregates. And it said, um, it takes our crisis again, causes action, something like that. And I said, no, that's a lie. That is not what happens. I said, what they do is crisis causes an opportunity for political posturing. And I use an example, whether it be the Supreme Court, the disinformation board, or the unfortunate, uh, the tragic and just terrible events of Buffalo just shortly uh, ago, in which the now, again, what's the first reaction of the Democrats? Gun control. The first reaction is assault weapons. The first reaction is, is to, to pound the right on uh, racism, whatever they want to. Why? Because in the midst of the chaos, they have found their purpose. You know, you, you raised something in my mind, too, when I'm hearing you describe this. And I think back at the time, you know, people have a, you know, uh, in D.C., I hear I'm in your old neighborhood again. Uh, there, there's like a protest almost every weekend in this town. You know, there's a protest for this and that. You, you, you've got people like Jane Fonda that's got her permanent location where she protests. But the mm -hmm. difference before, even when you saw the emotional ones going all the way back to the Reverend Martin Luther King, uh, mm -hmm. they were people that felt it in their soul and their spirit. Now you've got people that are fighting with an issue 
but you don't mm-hmm. know whether they really mean it more than anything to have a, a level of control and power to subordinate a, a, a group of people just because they feel like they can. And then a lot of us sit there and think, gosh, you know, I, I, I can be sympathetic, but if they win, do I really want them to be the bosses? Uh, exactly. I think one of the issues you have to deal with here is, is, is I, I appreciate the way you sort of frame the, the passion behind protest. Look, I believe that the First Amendment, that protest right is the very foundation of who we are. What we've seen, however, in years, uh, as the years have developed, the press has also gotten involved in this as well. And it's sort of they pick and choose which protest they deem righteous, if you would. To think about it, ever since, you know, we just had this Supreme Court leak, Roe v. Wade maybe going down. Uh, But ever since the the late 70s, there has been a march in Washington, one of the more, one of the larger marches, one of the more passionate marches, people coming from all over. And every year it is minimized in the press. Every year, they you know either talk about the numbers were lower or if they even mention it all it's in a passing form but yet you could have 10 people who many of which if you ask them wouldn't really know the issue they're protesting on gain you know sort of attention in the media um and that i think is also this manipulation that you're talking about there's this this move from journalism into a opinion which is fine if you if you state that's what you're doing but don't put it out there as you know a journalistic exercise because here's what's happening people are hearing bits and pieces even more i heard something just the other day that the attention span of an average american has dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds I mean, so it's hard enough to catch people's attention as it is. So they're hearing bits and pieces. And those who are good at it will let you hear those little bits and little bits and little bits just enough to keep uh, the the emotion stirred up. And that's really where the problem lies right now is the illogic of some of this emotion taking over. See how you do to me. Every time I've talked to you, you bring about 50,000 things in my mind because (laughs) first, you know, I, I started thinking about uh, the old song from the 80s. I don't know if you remember this song. It was called Who's Zooming Who? Uh-huh. And, and, and um, the reason I say that, because you talk about, you know, the, the media. But I think about this. Well, really, let's look at this in this political kind of crazy chessboard, this game that we play. We say the media is really biased, but who's feeding the information by who's owned, who owns the corporation? Are they they doing it for ratings? Does it make them look positive and strong? Does it make them look like they're someone that really is concerned about the audience? Is it a, a thing for clickbait? Do they take these leaks that, uh, you know, really, because they want to affect change, even if they're, well, I mean, I'll look at some, of them. for example, unfortunately, President Trump, a guy that you supported very strong, he had horrible people working for him. He had some people that were working for him that leaked like a sieve. And you think, wait a minute, who's starting you on? So again, it's who's, I mean, who, who's starting you on? The situation, even now, fortunately, you've got uh, some of these great reporters now that are going and getting tapes about what people are saying inside of Twitter. And the thing but is, again, where who's pulling whose string? Who's zooming who? Well, and I, I think, look, I'm one that always sort of cuts it straight down the middle. I mean, I think both sides do it. OK, let's just say I just I just think a lot of times that the especially when it comes to manipulating sort of the 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 emotional heartstrings of certain issues, Democrats have tended to do that. Liberals have tended to do that better. Um 
and in praying that I care for you. Here's the issue. But several things that you just pointed out, and I like the way, but let me just hit one. Donald Trump's administration had a ton of leaking going on, many of which always was under uh, wraps, undercover. Nobody wanted, you know, they, they were never outed. You didn't see that as much. You didn't frankly see it at all, hardly under the Obama administration or even a Biden administration, because I think there's a protection factor there. Remember, Donald Trump disrupted that, you know, Washington, D.C. in many, many ways. OK, some of it. And I'm going to proposit a different information here. I believe some of the the the, the problems that were there was that they chose to not like Donald Trump. They didn't like him from day one, no matter what they were. And they said, look, we're just not going to work with him. We're not going to allow him to be able to do what other presidents do, and that is to have some control over spin and media. We're not going to do that. We're going to fight him. And there's a group of people who work in the government that are not political appointees. Some get in, maybe. But they just said, look, we're not going to, you know, we're going to leak this stuff and because we don't like the, the top. Let's take that to a step further. Let's take it to what just happened to the United States Supreme Court. This should be very, I, I understand why it was leaked. And I'm going to have to, I'm going to assume, now there is some argument that there was maybe Roberts's office, which I just doubt drastically. Roberts is too cautious to do that or even have anybody in. But I do believe it was probably from the left and they were wanting to use it to leverage a Kavanaugh or a Gorsuch to maybe join Roberts in, in a way. What this does is take nine people who are supposedly have a very wide disparity of, of beliefs, from liberal to, to very conservative. They have to get together every week and decide the laws of this country under the constitutional premise. When you break that sort of vow, it's almost like a, a, a pastor, uh, parishioner, penitent kind of thing, that, that there's no freedom of discussion, then that really concerns me because a lot of the law, a lot of the rulings coming out of the court are frankly not as divided as we think they are. That means that liberals and conservatives have come away to find, say, okay, this is good, this is bad, this comports the Constitution, this doesn't. But if you break that trust, all Americans, not just those who are concerned about Roe v. Wade, are going to be affected by it. Well, the other thing is that at that point, you know, you've had that very sacred relationship with these people on, on uh, you know, not reaching the trust, you know, loose lips sink ships kind of thing. Yep. And then you say, okay, you're looking at everybody that works with you. Who's the spy? Who's the one? You know, who, who made it happen? Was it someone that maybe could have been a justice that figured that they were going to leak it to someone that could get it out and you know they keep their hands off of it it's the old thing about leaving a paper on the desk and somebody picks it up oh gosh i just discovered this wow jim comey <laughs> jim comey jim comey who lived next door to a friend of mine sold his house for three million dollars to the chinese but that's another story well, there you go but, oh yeah i know about that one but the main <laughs> thing is this you know the the the, the idea that if you're creeping carefully the graveyard you don't know who to trust mm -hmm. That's bad. Uh, uh, Clarence Thomas is saying he's concerned about the, you know, the ability for the Supreme Court to survive. Well, if we can't have the Supreme Court, who's going to be the one that makes the determination of the laws? Oh, and that's you. You sort of hit it here, and this is a concern. I mean, he made the statement the other day. He said, you know, he was he was sort of lashing out. I mean, and look, there's never been a. I believe in many ways there's never been a president in modern history who was as vilified in many ways. A little bit of both sides as, as Donald Trump was. Okay, I think Bush had it some. Obama was sort of untouched. I mean, there's some things you go through. Not, but, not like Trump. Not like no, Trump. They didn't like Trump, and, and you had and you had quote quote conservatives who didn't like him either, and were attacking as well. Justice Thomas is one who one. If you ever just as an attorney, I've read his opinions. His legal mind is brilliant. 
I mean, it is just whether you agree with it or not. I could I look, I can read liberal opinion and say, I disagree with every word you just said, but the, the logic here is it is really good. I mean, I, the way you see it. So this is really bothersome to me that you're taking this court that determines everything and now made them sensitive, even dealing with each other. We're going to take a little break on that. I'm so happy to have a wonderful guy on the show today, Doug Collins, former member of Congress. He is uh, just an amazing guy, pastor, well, chaplain yeah. uh, with the reserves. And we've got so much more to cover. Don't you dare even think about going away. This is the hard question. And I'm Blanquita Cullum. We'll be back. Not everything that's reported on television is true, but it ought to be. NTD, a New York-based global television network, is independent, reliable, and fact-based. We don't decide where the news happens. What we do is cover it. Check out NTD and you'll know. We believe in the strength of our nation and the hope in our shared humanity. NTD broadcasts uplifting and inspiring programs that enrich your life you joy. Turn on NTD, America's television legacy in the making. Find your local channel at ntd.com slash TV or call 680-201-4999 or call 680-201-4999. Welcome back to The Hard Question delighted to welcome back to the show after a long time from the member of Congress, Doug Collins from Georgia. He is an author of a book called The Clock and the Calendar. Man, that almost, I'm, I'm anxious to get it because it kind of has a little tiny bit of an Orwell kind of sense of urgency to the book. Tell us about the book real quickly. Well, the book was for it was a it was a it was sort of a passion project for me. After I got out last year, I sat down and wrote it because I wanted that people to have a firsthand experience of what the impeachment sham was like that I had to live through through 2019. Oh, yeah. And the the amazing switch over when the Democrats took over in 2019, and their only obsession was getting uh, to an impeachment of Donald Trump because they were so scared that he would win re-election in 2020. And so what I wrote was a very first person account. If you want historical books, there's plenty of those out there. This one is from my perspective. You're walking with me through that year of 2019. And toward the end, especially after we got through Mueller, after we got through everything else, and then they found the Ukrainian call. And when it got to the end, I kept harping on the fact that I said, this is all about the clock and the calendar. It's about time to get it done before the calendar turns so that they could actually have something to go with Donald Trump. It was not about it. It was not about things that were actually impeachable. It was about the fact that there was a political uh, sham. And so I take you into it. Not only I give some backdoor, uh, you know, backside information about, you know, just little things like, you know, breaking my glasses when I went to read part of the, the Mueller report that they oh uncovered for. I flew up, broke my glass. I'm holding them together reading oh this. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's just real world. And and, I, and so far it's been, it's been received very well. A, a lot of information, especially about my relationship with Jerry Nadler, uh, which was very. Uh, just who retired. He just retired. Yeah. Did you, I, I haven't seen you. I know that they got put in different uh, thing. He, it was an interesting relationship. Um, but I write about that because what people miss about Washington is, is that we are real people. And, you know, we have, and you know, people know me and I see, they see me in the airport and I say, Oh, I know you didn't. 
but I'm also Lisa's husband. I'm the, I'm the dad of three kids. I, you know, those are the kind of things that I try to input into this book with other members as well. Well, you know, and you think about even geography, I remember a, a very good friend of mine who was in Congress, probably served with you, Congressman Pete Olson from Houston, yeah. in the Sugarland area, a very dear friend of mine. And of course, his neighbor, his next door neighbor was Jerry Nadler. Yep. And I, when you think to myself, you know, who could, two people that could be more opposite from their political perspective, but you all have to, you get along cordially, except it's, it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm, you're going to think this is crazy, but I think it relates to you all. Uh, I'm a very dear friend with a, a great attorney that I'm sure you're, you're, you're aware of her name is uh, Gloria Allred. Mm-hmm. And Gloria Allred and I have done many, many years. We've done a lot of television programs together. Now, when we get on the camera, we know how to fight. But off camera, we go out and have dinner. We're very close friends. And I, it used to kind of be that way, uh, at least it seemed to me in D.C., when even though you could fight great in the, on the floor, but you still came out of there and you were cordial with each other, respectful of each other. It's still true for probably 90%. There, there's some who've made their living and on both the right and the left as being the hardcore, you know, I, I don't get along. I, I'll share. And I, this is, it's not a private, it's not a private thing for the, for the, my first six years of Congress, I got a lot of stuff done. Uh, we did first step act criminal justice forum. We did uh, global security. We did trade, uh, uh, trademarks, those kind of things. It did a lot. And one of my uh, partners in that was Hakeem Jeffries. Hakeem Jeffries and I developed a very good friend to this day. Um, now, what was true is just like you said, it's sort of like the WWE wrestling. You know, when you're on, you're on, you know, and then when you get in the car, everybody rides back to the hotel together. But Hakeem and I could always state our differences and we acknowledged our differences. But we also found that Washington also has to be a place in which you can acknowledge where you where you agree, because the American people really are they, they want to see agreement. They don't want to see compromise in the sense of of one sidedness, but they do want to see things that actually work. And Hakeem was one of those that I partnered with in music and a lot of other things. Um, you know, here was a guy from a liberal from Harlem and a, and a conservative from North Georgia. OK, and from Brooklyn. I'm sorry. And, and you you we got things done, but it is one of those things that's missing right now. And I do believe in, in many ways, the separation that is built into this contentiousness is frankly hurting us as a country. Well, it's always also hurting both parties Yes, because yes. you don't have, you know, we would talk about the old days, you'd have a blue dog Democrat that might be more conservative and a yellow dog Democrat. And you had, you know, you have the, the, the Republicans would have a rhino, a Republican name only, and all these. But now it is so fractured that, again, you say, who, who are these people? Let me take you back to the, uh, let me take you back to Mr. Trump. Because, okay. you know, originally I'm from Texas. People from Texas, we're, we're not so put off by people who are bigger than life. You know, we like big personalities, big hair, wild clothes. You know, we're, we're just big people like, but, but Mr. Trump came across as someone I think, and you correct me if you think I'm wrong. He seems so uh, out of the box that a lot of the people from both sides of the aisle didn't know either if they could work with him or control him. And I think maybe that's part of the reason that they wanted to get him out of the way because he didn't fit the mold of even someone that spoke outrageously, but they could, they could manage. Yeah. 
I got to know him, of course, after he got to be president. I didn't know him beforehand. I uh, got to know him. In fact, then that uh, last few years, I have gotten to know him very well. We talk. Uh, uh, we don't talk every day, but we talk occasionally. And what I was struck by when I did get to start to know him was, one, I say this, what, what he is in public, he is in private. Okay, so the, the, right. the, the gregariousness, the forcefulness, what you see uh, is the same, which I think is important because I've seen, I've seen differences in people. What it meant for him, though, was he always, although the, although the left would never give it to him, he always had a, and this may sound strange to some who don't want to believe it, but I'm just going to tell you it's true, a deep sort of awe of the job. He, he understood he was president. He didn't always do it in the way that would make the diplomatic niceties or anything else, but, but he always kept the card and said, here's what I promised, here's what I wanted to do. And, right. and when I would come into a room with him, I've been in the Oval Office with him or I've been other places, and, and I, without sharing specifics, but I'd always say this, he would always ask about things that he was concerned about. How, we had, I remember one time I went to the office, we had just had a, uh, some storms down here in Georgia. The first thing he said is, I'm coming into the room, you know, Doug, how is dun, 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 dun. And he, and he asked, but you know, those questions, he didn't have a card in front of him. He just, you know, he'd been working on it. He asked, he was concerned. He would ask about family. So I think again, there's something that's missing in the narrative. Maybe it'll be written in, in years to come. Maybe I'll write it. I don't know. Or somebody else that when Donald Trump was elected, both Democrats didn't like him and Republicans didn't know what he was going to do because he was still so new to conservative politics that although he said, you know, here's my judges I'm going to select, here's this, he had not, but yet he was making outreach and say, hey, Speaker Pelosi or Nancy Pelosi, if you want to work together, let's do it. Hold that thought, because, you know, you and I get in a ramble here. We can just keep going on for hours. Good. Doug Collins is with us, former member of Congress, a great guy from the state of Georgia. He's got a brand new book out. We're going to take a break. We've got more to come here on The Hard Question. I'm Blanquita Cullum. Every 40 seconds in the U.S., a child 18 years and under is abducted. Human trafficking happens in every community, regardless of race, gender, culture, or socioeconomic status. I'm Andy Berger, founder and chair of Voices Against Trafficking. My passion to turn the tide on criminal predators is fueled in part by my personal experience as a child sex trafficking victim. For decades, I've been a voice for the voiceless, but I need more voices, your voice, to help bring justice to those who sell human beings for a profit. Voices Against Trafficking is a national and international partnership made up of individuals, businesses, law enforcement, nonprofits, survivors, and more who are dedicated to winning this fight. One of our members, Kathy Haddam, says, one voice has tremendous power, but when voices unite collectively to combat human trafficking and sexual exploitation, an unstoppable movement is born. Add your voice by clicking join at VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com. Together, we can be one voice for the voiceless. Doug Collins joining us here on The Hard Question. I'm BQ, Blankita Cullum, and happy to have your smiling face back on the show again, Doug Collins. A lot to cover because we've been talking about uh, so many things, and we were talking about you've had a good relationship with former president, uh, Mr. Mr. Trump. The, the interesting thing, and, and his big personality, he got has gotten a lot of things done. People are panicked right now in one particular place that I went to, Doug, and that's the border. 
with Title 42. And, um, you know, now you've got these, uh, the Lone Star, such Operation Lone Star, taking the immigrants, uh, the, the, you know, the illegal doc, undocumented migrants, as we have to say it now very carefully, and taking them to DC. Actually, I think they should take them to Delaware. But here's, and I say that as a Latina, okay, because I lived on the border. I had a grandmother that lived in Tijuana. I had, my mother was from Sonora. But there, what's happening there is there is such a, it's such an influx that people can't handle it on the border. The Border Patrol is overwhelmed. It is. Being ranking member of the Judiciary Committee and in before then in Congress when we had several, this is the most interesting thing. Republicans want to try and solve the problem, starting with security and then allowing an orderly immigration process. That's that's the feeling of most uh, Republicans. The opposite is true, it seems like, with Democrats who want the issue, they don't want a solution. And I saw this in working in in, uh, in Congress for eight years. I saw it as ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, which we had permanent uh, jurisdiction over. I stated this a little bit ago. What's happening at the border right now, Secretary Marcus ought to do one of two things. He needs to get out before the Republicans take over. He needs to have his two years and resign, or he's going to be impeached, and rightfully so. Uh, I've never seen a Department of Homeland Security in the short 20-something years of existence have a person who seemingly has does not have the security of our nation at heart. And because, and if you say, oh, Doug, that's being harsh, why you say that? I said, well, just simply look at the border. He doesn't talk about it. He barely goes down there. We're getting ready to lift Title 42. I mean, there's all these things that are going on, and yet it's no urgency to it. And they're not, again, anything that happened on the border under Trump, it was direct, it was terrible. They put it on the papers, everything else. Although a lot of it started under Obama, and now you've just got a throwing up of our hands and not doing it. So you've hit it perfectly. It's also why Republicans are picking up Hispanic votes because they're looking around and saying, look, we don't understand. Well, here's the thing I wanted to ask you, because a lot of people are concerned about the health of the president, the current president right now. This is I'm very (laughs) respectful, you know, and they're not particularly fond of the vice president. The, The numbers are just abysmal. If they walk out the door and we have a situation like Gerald Ford, where guess who's the president? Nancy Pelosi. So the question is, do you do you believe that the, uh, you know, that the move is by the members of the Congress, and particularly the Republican Party, to kind of pace this thing out until after they can take potentially the, the majority of the House and the Senate so that maybe something, there'll be a solution in place? And how would that play out? Well, I, th- I think you look at, I think they're going to, if, if Republicans come in and all, I think they need to, to investigate, do the investigation that Congress needs to do. I mean, you got the Hunter Biden situation. You still got the Durham investigation. You still got a lot. They need to do that. But if they simply come in with a focus like the Democrats did in 2019, and I say this with, with respect because I was there. If they come in and simply say, we're going to impeach Joe Biden come hell or high water, then we are in trouble, I think, in the next presidential election, because people, to a point, our base loves it, both liberal and conservative, the hard, hard bases love that. But at the end of the day, it probably would never get through the Senate unless we had 60 plus, and even then it would be out. So to think it would even happen uh, is, is out there. So my question would be, is how can we then use that to do the investigation, make the case, win the presidency back, and then and then let's do a conservative agenda and not say, well, now we're back in power. Let's, you know, let's make sure we work with the Senate. Let's say, folks, the one thing that makes Nancy Pelosi an extremely powerful leader, BQ, let me let me do this real quickly. She's willing to give up power and position for policy. 
And she did it in 2009, 2010, getting Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, all these things. She knew she was going to lose the house. They kept telling her she's going to lose the house. She said, we're doing it anyway. She lost the house. She spent eight years in the wilderness, so to speak, came back in 2019. She uh, went after Donald Trump. She did everything she could to, to taint and, the, and damage the electability of Donald Trump. And then now she started the spending pattern that we saw as drove us into inflation. Why? She also knows she's going to lose again this November. She's willing to give up the position and the power to get the policies. Because you know what's still there? Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, they're still there. And I think people are just fatigued on cop. I mean, it's like, everyone, can we just get through? I don't want to have another investigation. I don't want to see another impeachment. Can we fix the country? You know, the ironic thing, going back to the chaos on this, Doug, is that, you, you know, people are angry. They're, you know, they're, they want their baby formula. They want to be able to drive to work and pay for the gas. They want to be able to see someone and give them a hug and I have to worry about the mask getting in the way. You know, they want to have, they want to like their neighbor, even if they hate their politics. And all of this nonsense, it's like enough already, which I wonder how you feel about this, is it encourages this kind of confusion and, and the idea that even if we vote, is it going to get counted? Yeah, and I think that's going to be an interesting part. And, and I was been concerned about this for a number of years. It is so to me, and, and without going, you know, deep diving this, because I mean, we could get into a lot of weeds here. It just bothers me that for the last few years, from 2016, others, Democrats down here in Georgia in 2018, questioned the election. They were beginning this process of your disenfranchised question. Your governor didn't help. Kemp. Oh, exactly. And then and then didn't help. Then we come into 2020. Then you got the right now saying elections bad. Uh, Mickey, this is one of the things I'm really concerned about. OK, there, there's been steps put in place, I think, here in Georgia and other places to make it better. Probably not all that needs to be. We can get there. Not going to get into that. But here's what I am going to get at. Where are we going to be? And right now, I mean, we got a Pennsylvania election. It's razor thin. OK, as we speak, you and I speak, this is happening. And the question will be, is my confidence level into the point of people who have been told this is a problem? So if you hear it so many times, you will start believing it. Okay. Whether it be true or false, you will start believing it. And, and my concern is, is that we've had elections in this country for 200 plus years in which the integrity or sacredness of that vote has kept us together. And when, you know, the, the processes you can argue about how we do things you argue about, but the, the very dynamic of voting cannot be dissuaded. Here's my concern. I get a lot of texts because I speak to a lot of young people and young people are basically looking at this and saying, I don't know what y'all's problem is. I'm tired of this. And, and they're, they're sort of checking out. And that's become a, a real concern uh, in many ways. Uh, this election in 2022 is shaping up a lot, and you remember this as well. For me, the 2012 election cycle a little bit, uh, even the 2014, in which there was a polarization that was occurring, and you saw candidates getting in races winning, but then not getting elected because it just sort of fell apart. I'm anxious to see on the, the left how that's happening in Texas and in New York and other places, and frankly, some on the right, you know, what will that November look like? Well, you know, the funny thing is, too, you were talking about the younger generation, whether it's the generation below the millennials and about the lack of 
being able to focus because I think with how social media, how the internet has you know, grown, you barely can see a, a, a you know a network like we used to have appointment viewing on ABC, CBS, NBC. You know, we said, oh, it's six o'clock. I'm going to walk the news. People don't care about that now. They want to be able to get it anytime they want to get it. They want to focus on the areas that they like. And you know, you got the kids that the competition has waned. You know, people don't like to feel like they're the victor anymore. You know, it's okay show up and get a medal. Uh, it's it's a whole transformation of how we prioritize. You know, kids don't have uh, role models like they used to. When we were kids, you looked at astronauts. You know, you look at sports figures. You look at leaders around the world. Ah, I don't know. It's a rap star. Uh, the the whole idea has changed. So how with the, the idea of saying again, we're afraid to say, well, I'm a, I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. Raise that flag. This is the best country in the world. How does pride come across in understanding the beauty of our our foundation, our fundamentals, uh, become evolved into canceling? Tear down that statue of right. Jefferson. You just hit a you know something we could take a ten hour dissertation on. I think here's the problem. I think what, what I have seen in this and where I believe it is headed is over the years, we've taken this idea of education. You're not going to find a conservative like myself who is more uh, advocating for a diverse, what we used to know as a liberal arts education. You take views that you've never heard. You take views you like, but you learn them. You, you understand them. And then you formulate your own. You know, I, I'm in another life. I was a pastor. I'm still a chaplain. I had a, a when I got my master's degree, before I got my law degree, I had a pro professor who taught uh, preaching. You know, and he basically said, he said, one of the things he said, he says, graze where you want, but give your own milk. In other words, he said, go read, learn, and but give your own product. What we're finding today is, is in this uh, me society, and it's also a question coming from our uh, educational system that says there is no rights and wrongs. There is, I mean, look, if you're having to have a question on is there more than one gender, and, and this is a conversation that we're having, then we've got a serious problem here, okay? But what it does is then it takes it into everything else. And I think that's become the problem that we got to adjust to. If you can get your news in your own preference sheet, then I'm going to guarantee you you're not getting the news. You're getting your view of the world. And to have a well-rounded citizen, you need to have somebody like myself who can listen to a Hakeem Jeffries and look at him and say, man, I like you, but you're just wrong. You know, and, and then be able to say, here's why I believe what I believe. That's a dying art right now, and, and it's not rewarded. Well, look at the protests, okay? If, for example, a protest about abortion, and and you and you and and to get the hands off of my off of my body off of my uterus. Well, wait a minute. If you can't even identify what a woman is, you know, you had this candidate for the Supreme Court uh, basically brought before us a candidate because she was a woman of color and she was a she, but she doesn't know how to identify who a woman is. And no one asked her, well, what are you? Are you a woman? Okay, the, the question is, if you can have a baby, but you uh, can get pregnant and you're a man as a transgender woman who's become a man, well, wait a minute. First of all, you know, can we get through the big lie is, you know, what I, I feel like is it's okay if somebody wants to make that choice, but that's the choice. But the difference is don't lie about how it started. We're going to come right back. Doug Collins is with us. And I never have enough time to get through all the issues with him. He's so terrific and more on the clock and the calendar. And also we'll follow up on that investigation. I'm Lankita Collins. This is a hard question.
Not everything that's reported on television is true, but it ought to be. NTD, a New York-based global television network, is independent, reliable, and fact-based. We don't decide where the news happens. What we do is cover it. Check out NTD and you'll know. We believe in the strength of our nation and the hope in our shared humanity. NTD broadcasts uplifting and inspiring programs that enrich your life and bring you joy. Turn on NTD, America's television legacy in the making. Find your local channel at ntd.com TV or call 680-201-4999 or call 680-201-4999. is joining us here on The Hard Question. I'm BQ Blanquita Cullum. He has just written this incredible book, which you know, Doug, I have to get. Doug Collins' book is called The Clock and the Calendar. He served as the uh, ranking member of the U.S. House's Judiciary Committee. He was in Congress forever from Georgia, and he's now right here on The Hard Question. Doug, this you know, you were talking about the book and how it goes into this investigation, the drive for the impeachment of former President Trump. And, you know, the whole thing about Russia and, you know, I think about, some, I, I actually worked with this guy's wife, Stefan Halper, some of these people that that brought allegations, you know, and I, I had a fight with a friend who was from Britain, talked about, oh, Steele was so credible as the, you know, and, and, and it was false. The guy was, you know, either doing it for money or something. Give us, give us your insight. What did you discover on this? What I found that it should disturb every American and myself, uh, Devin Nunez, Jim Jordan, there was a lot of us who did in Trey Gowdy, you know, going back in a long way, had just started finding this out, that what we were being fed was a lie. And and it goes back, and I know some people may roll their eyes, but but really reality will cause them to have to look in. This all goes back to Hillary Clinton and emails. And it goes back, if you want to take it a step further to Benghazi, but we'll just take it back to the emails. When she was treating herself different than everybody else is treated, she was receiving classified information. And out of that began a process in which she got into the presidential election. She was uh, getting ready to go up against Donald Trump. There was these email questions hanging out there. There was a meeting on the tarmac. I could go into a lot of this. All I'm trying to say is, is what bothers me the most is everything Durham is bringing out now is just confirming that we were right all along and saying, look, there is a government conspiracy here, a gov inside the Department of Justice, Comey, Strzok, McCabe, uh, Page. Uh, you know, you, you look at all of this. They said, look, we have an opportunity to get at somebody. It started at the convention in Cleveland. We see it moving all the way through. Four times, Comey signed warrant, these FISA warrants to actually go before the court saying that this was verified information, in which he knew that it wasn't. We're now finding out that, uh, the, of course, that the, the whole Steele dossier, it was a joke to start with. It was never true. We tried to point this out. Even the, what makes it sad is the, quote, new right now where she's about out of a job, the new Ministry of Disinformation uh, head was still believes that the Steele dossier was true and that Hunter Biden's laptop was made up by the Trump administration. What we're finding out is none of that was true. It was all what we were saying. And this is what brings people to not trust government and not trust their people. Well, look what's happened with the FBI. 
I mean, the fifth, you know, fidelity, bravery, integrity. Um, you know, uh, we all had to go through background checks from the FBI. You know, when I was Senate confirmed, my God, everybody investigated me. The question here, though, then is if we can't trust the FBI, if we have a concern about the CIA, if we can't, you know, we, we worry about people leaking at the Supreme Court. That's the, that's the fundamental foundation of our of our system there. We can't, we, you know, what's going on? If you can't trust them, who can you trust? Exactly. And this is the concerning part because you did, we couldn't find it out through the normal means. I mean, it was, they were hiding it. They, they're good. I mean, somebody's always asked me, do I think Comey's going to go to prison? Do I think he probably should? Probably should be held accountable. I'm not sure what the punishment would be, but will I do? I think he ever will. No, I don't. Uh, because I think he was that good. Remember, I, I sort of make this loose analogy. They never stopped the mob on the big things they thought the mob was doing. It was always the taxes that always got them. And I think it was these, this, the emails and the leaks that got them. Al Capone. Exactly. Capone. It, it, the problem I have is, is this went back to the Oval Office with, with President Obama. President Obama, Joe Biden, in the Oval Office got a briefing. They knew what the Clinton campaign was doing, and that was the Russian disinformation. This is not my conjecture. This is fact. It's, it's, it's proven out fact. And, and the left just, just runs right through that. When you have the center, when you have your intelligence community working with your FBI, dealing in an election and not telling anybody about it, and then you take it a step further two years later, you have the, uh, which even more information found, and you have the press and social media downplaying an actual occurrence it's no wonder people don't trust, uh, you know, the media. They don't trust what they're hearing, and and there's become such a generalized frustration out there. Well, you think about it here. Gosh, Doug, you know, you know, this is terrible. You always do this to me. I, you know, I'm thinking about how with the media you had Brennan on CNN. You had a lot of these, you know, high level former members and senior positions that came across as the big authorities and knew everything because they knew where the bodies are buried. And don't you even question because I'm the great and powerful wizard of wizard of Oz. And so then you think, well, wait a minute here. What what happened behind the scenes there? And and then the other unfortunate thing that's going on, whether you think that they were criminals or you don't to get me determined is those guys and gals that are in, at the J6ers that don't have the ability to talk to a lawyer, to get a haircut, to get medicine, can't go to a chaplain. You know, I think we have got a very, we're on a, we're on a tipping point here if we don't get it together. How do we get it together? How do we clean it up? Again, it's like, not so much that I want to see everybody go and impeach this or do, I just, I think the majority of people just say, can we get a grip here and how do we fix it? Well, and, and again, I'm going to go back to something we started this with, you know, 30, 40 minutes ago. Okay. And that goes back to, it, go, it goes back to this, this understanding of, of manipulation and chaos. All right. They do not want you to believe that anything except the narrative of Donald Trump and his folks were, you know, in some ways, you know, being traitorous to this country. Okay, it's probably the only way to put it. And they feed that narrative, feed that narrative. And look, what, you know, and no matter what, you know, look, breaking the cow wrong. I mean, you don't do that. They be hell punished. But I'm also an attorney and, and I do not understand why it's been over a year and some of these folks are charged, still in jail, have never had a court date, have never had, they've had a, their case. And, and many times, look, have their court date. This is what America is about. You're not guilty, then, then, then you get proven something else. You're innocent, then prove it. Get these folks to trial or get them pled if that's what they want to do, however you do it. But this, this dragging this out, making this event you know, heightened in the awareness or however you want to put it is really doing a disservice. I mean, there are cases down here in Georgia of 
you know, murder, aggravated assault that have made it to trial almost quicker than, than these have. There's no excuse for that. And when they when the defense attorneys have asked, you know, hey, let's move this forward, they're saying, well, we're still gathering information. No, that's not the way this works. You know, you're trying to prove this huge theory, but the actuality is you've charged them with these individual crimes, many of which are misdemeanors. Now, the, this is just going to have to develop out. But people, again, this is that going back to what we talked about before, you know, you take what is wrong, you call it wrong. It's just like in the country right now, we talk about the, the shootings and all, is, is this racism. Racism is wrong. I don't care if you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic. If you dislike somebody else based on their you know religion, ethnicity, or who they are, that's racism and you're wrong. Okay, don't sugarcoat. It goes back to what we talked about before. It's not right versus left, it's right versus wrong. If you target someone and you attempt to kill them, if you threaten them to the point that they feel insecure or that their life is being threatened, it doesn't matter your color of your skin, you're guilty. I mean, if that has been proven, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, as you said, any part on that scale, straight, gay, Christian, Jewish, agnostic, whatever. If you did something that breaks the law, you should be judged accordingly. And I think right now we have to we have a, we have like a, a radometer. It says eh, it's going to go a little bit more if you this this is this. Bing 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 bing. Okay, forever to jail. The other person, oh, you took out uh, you did a smash and grab over at Gucci. Well, you deserve it. You've had a hard yeah. life. Well, I think it goes back to I'm going to take a faith based issue here. Is you know the the questions always asked, what sin is greater? And from a Christian-based perspective, it's not which sin is greater, all sin is sin, okay? And right. and and you have to deal with it in those counts. And, and again, I've done a lot of work in criminal justice, uh, working with President Trump for the bill. That, the First Step Act was my bill. I actually wrote that bill. Um, and, and we talked about it. So you just got to work with people. That's what we got to get back to is saying, we, George Washington said it best, his final address, he said, quit worrying about where you're from or who you are you're now americans and now that ends the show and i can't stand it because i've had such a great conversation with you dud collins come back again on the hard question i'm lucky to come